Support for this show is brought to you by Instill. Our friends at Instill really understand what it means to build and manage relationships in a holistic and human-first way. The platform's advanced UX design and real-time analytics, smooth donor management to make it easy for you to connect every supporter to the impact of your work. To learn more, head on over to www.instill.io backslash Mallory. Folks just want to be heard. And sometimes the resolution is you need to change a process or shift a way of working together. But a lot of times it's just, I just needed to know you heard me. Welcome back to episode 11 of What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. Today, I'm interviewing Avery Kent, a serial social entrepreneur with deep expertise in making ideas a reality. She was the co-founder of conveners.org, Impact Alpha, and the Happiness Institute. And since the pandemic, she has focused on mental and emotional well-being for business leaders. She is adept at navigating challenging conversations and supporting groups towards productive dialogue and action. Today, we dive deep into a conversation about wellness, both individual and organizational. What do we need as people to thrive in our environments and as leaders? And what culture do we need to create in order to ensure that the people around us are thriving too? As a leader herself, Avery gets it. Isolation and leadership, board management, culture building, she addresses all of it in this episode. I have never had an hour fly by quite so fast. So let's jump in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode. I'm so excited to have you here with someone that I really admire, Avery Kent. And we are going to be having an exciting conversation about business culture and mental health. And she has so much wisdom to share in all of these different areas. So Avery, let's just start with you introducing yourself and giving us a little background on your history and what brings you really to this moment, to this conversation today. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to participate in this conversation. So my name is Avery Kent. I am a serial entrepreneur. I've started five different companies that have run the gamut from media for-profits to consumer products companies to community spaces and, and most recently a global association of conferences and accelerators that was a nonprofit. And through that process, I've also really been through the spectrum around mental health and well-being and self-care. And I think for many folks after the incredible disruptions that COVID-19 imposed on all of us, that the regulations imposed on all of us, it feels like there's this moment now where we can talk about mental health and well-being and resilience without the same stigma that I know I personally experienced earlier in my career that made it very challenging. To, to find support and to find connection and to feel like I wasn't alone in my burnout or in my blowups with my co-founders or, you know, anything like that. Yeah. It's really amazing, huh? How we feel the same way that I really had no place to ever talk about burnout, that there was this real acceptance of hustle culture being a value of effective leadership. And that there wasn't a lot of space to talk about the ways in which it was actually detrimental or, you know, then we would see it, you know, why are we, I remember thinking at some point, like, why am I struggling so much to take care of my staff? And then I was like, oh, (laughs) perhaps it has something to do with the way that I'm working and just kind of looking at that big mirror on my own experience too. Yeah. That cult of busy is extremely pervasive. And I found for many folks it ended up bleeding over into their personal lives as well. And really seeing that as like this badge of honor, instead of seeing it as like a symptom of something being kind of fundamentally broken. And both as a business leader, how do you hold up that well-being for yourself, but also modeling that culture for your team? And I think there's a generational shift that's happening around that as well that I've that I've seen in in a lot of the different things I've read around 
a rejection of this nine to five or nine to six, just somehow being a body in this in a seat is worthy of praise versus being a sign of inefficiency. And what does it mean to just do your work, do it well, do it within a flexible time scheme? Like there, there's a lot of paradigms that a leader has to shift if they're going to really implement the kind of culture that supports people to thrive and that helps to build that foundation of psychological safety. So I love that. So talk to us about that. What are some of those paradigms? Absolutely. So psychological safety is a concept that kind of comes up over and over again, both in the peer-reviewed like academic literature, but also in just, you know, articles in Fast Company or Inc., you'll, you'll see this kind of come up time and time again. And it comes back to this idea of, do you feel safe or comfortable disagreeing with leadership? Do you feel safe or comfortable naming early if you think you're not going to be able to achieve or complete or finish a project or a task? Do you feel safe asking for help? And you know, that can be viewed through, I think, one paradigm, which is a very narrow lens of purely within the business context, right? I check my personal life at the door, I show up, and now like, okay, maybe I feel safe naming that I've got too much on my plate, and so I'm not going to get that concept note written, for example, or get that article reviewed. But do I feel safe naming, hey, actually, my grandmother's in the hospital right now, and my child is sick with the flu, and I don't know how I'm going to juggle all that and do all of this. That's a very different level of transparency and of sharing. And it's one that I feel like a lot of organizations were kind of forced into grappling with throughout 2020 because everybody was now from working from home. Right. And people were getting sick and people like there were, there were things where it's just like you, you couldn't check it at the door. There was no door anymore. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I think that's a part of the paradigm shift. And I think the other part is is a pretty significant shift away from seeing employees as just interchangeable parts that honestly goes all the way back to like the industrial revolution to really seeing employees as partners and knowledge workers and relationship holders and folks who are contributing their full selves and their full creativity. And we, in many ways, especially where I'm based in Silicon Valley, worship like disruption and innovation, but you cannot fundamentally have innovation if you don't have psychological safety because the default becomes saying yes to authority, saying yes to power, even if you don't think it's a good idea or if you have information that is pertinent, you don't share that because you don't feel safe sharing it or you don't have a reason to or a container to. And I think that's part of this paradigm shift is if we really want to be innovative, if we want to, if you want your organization to be at the forefront and therefore also to be financially viable and successful, there have to be ways to hear the hard truths or to hear multiple perspectives that maybe go counter to your assumptions that you're walking into it with. Yeah, I love that. And I think what you're talking about in terms of nonprofit leaders in particular is such an astute point around sort of disruption and innovation, which the nonprofit sector in many ways, same with the, you know, startup world and everything, but is really tasked with solving these massive problems, but exists for nonprofits in particular in this scarcity framework that doesn't create a lot of safety, period, definitely not psychological safety. And so then they find themselves in this sort of continual, what I call like the hamster wheel of how do we create the space where our brains can even solve the problem in front of us, but everything about our daily operating procedure is kind of in direct conflict with what we're asking our brains to do. And this may be a bit of a tangent, but a a lot of my work has also been around effective philanthropy. And how do we support nonprofits in in receiving funds, especially grants, in a way that's less painful? And one of the things that comes up around that is the just the fundamental disconnect between this philanthropic focus on efficiency and reducing overhead and the kind of pervasiveness that ends up happening in the nonprofit sector of mining people for their passion, right? Like, for some reason, the sense I have, and if, if I'm wrong on this, please correct me, but the sense I have is that a lot of times 
we expect that if you are doing something that is deeply mission aligned or deeply connected to your personal passion, that that means you're supposed to sacrifice your salary to do that. And that you're supposed to work for peanuts because of that. And there's a deeper value system there that I think fundamentally contributes to what I believe is the larger pervasiveness of burnout in the nonprofit or social sector, where folks are being pushed because they believe their work matters so much. They don't want to let down their constituents. They don't want to let down their team. They don't want to let down the cause. And so they'll, they'll power through, power through, power through without really having space to restore and space to get that energy back. And it's not just about increased financial compensation. It's also about companies having the resourcing where people aren't being asked to do the work of three humans, where someone taking vacation days is celebrated, not scorned, or where as a new parent, you can actually take time off to be with your kid. I mean, I I took five weeks off and ended up having to come back because there was a bit of a financial crisis. And that was extremely difficult to navigate. And and it's something I see coming up on different women's founders groups I'm a part of on Facebook of new moms who are also founders asking that question of like, how am I supposed to do this? You know, because you can't predict the impact on your health, your sleep, your focus, your clarity of thought until you've actually had a kid. And yet your company is your baby too. And so how do you? How do you nurture both at the same time? Totally. And I think, you know, there's so much about what you just said that I think is really important. I mean, that overhead conversation is certainly, it just sets a tone, right? For the value of people. And I think, you know, I had another conversation recently with someone talking about inner safety, right? You're talking about psychological safety within culture and organizations, but then this person was talking about sort of inner safety. Like how do we feel safe in ourselves too? And how do we sort of protect ourselves through boundaries. And then I think about these leaders in the nonprofit sector who are being asked to work for nowhere near enough because their heartstrings are being tugged at and their mission alignment is being, I don't know if manipulated is the right word, but really being like, you know, kind of like leverage to suck as much from these people as possible. And then they're not supposed to feel offended when they hear that someone doesn't want to give to overhead, which is essentially devaluing their work, right? It's so complicated. And I feel like there's this constant tug on, well, We need you to care a lot right now when it comes to what you're going to produce for us, but don't care too much later because that wasn't personal, what we said next, right? And it's this truly emotional roller coaster. And then in the midst of this, we're asking nonprofit leaders to set up these thriving cultures. And that is, I found it to be almost an impossible task with the competing, you know, pieces around me. And I found with with that idea of a thriving culture, there's a few different pillars to it, right? So I believe it always starts with the individual, right? So it starts with the leader and your personal alignment. Are you clear on what you need to physically be healthy? Are you clear on what you need to emotionally be supported? Are you clear on what you need to intellectually be stimulated and curious And spiritually, are you feeling connected to some form of higher purpose, whatever that might be? And what I have personally found as a leader kind of over and over again was this very deep isolation where it wasn't safe to be honest to my board because I needed them to believe in me. It wasn't safe to be honest to the team because I needed them to not be riding the roller coaster of uncertainty that was my everyday experience. Definitely wasn't safe to be honest to my members or my community, right? Because like they have to, like so much of building any organization for profit or nonprofit is a little bit of a confidence game, right? People have to believe in you and have to believe that you're going to be successful to unlock the resources and the programs and the relationships and all the things that you need to genuinely thrive. And I think oftentimes being honest about the stress, about the toll on sleep, the toll on eating behaviors, the toll on your physical exercise, the toll on your personal relationships can very much be seen as undermining that confidence. And so that's why a very important kind of program to me and something that I've been 
really curious to pilot is this idea of peer, non-clinical peer support. What does it mean to have access to other business leaders who've been there, who've had those experiences, and to have a confidential container where you can be honest about those roller coasters and where you can ask for help? You know, and this is fortunately something that I'm really excited to be piloting with Kaiser Permanente. Our thriving leader circles will be running this summer, and it's an opportunity for small cohorts of, of 10 to 12 business leaders to come together and have that space to just be honest with each other and, and to build that sense of shared experience. And I think that alone can do a lot to combat that sense of stigma and the sense of isolation that happens when you're, when you're looking at just like the individual well-being of a leader. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, I totally agree. I feel like when I was an executive director, I got invited to participate in a sort of young executive director cohort. And it was game changing for me because you're right, especially for the executive director. But I also think the development directors fall into this a little bit too, especially in organizations where there's one of them, where they feel really isolated. They feel like, can I be totally open with my executive director around my fear? around these numbers? Can I talk to the board about this thing? Should I share that piece with the donors? Like, who are your people, right? Who are your people? And then I find that those like continue then to perpetuate the fear, right? As opposed to just saying, actually, here's this thing that just kind of always feels scary. You know, like I have never seen an organization without doing some very specific work around it, just totally sit back and be like, oh yeah, like we're good. It's just going to keep rolling in like this, right? There is this thing you care about that you love so much that you believe so strongly in. There is always, and baked in a sector fueled by language around scarcity, you know, there's always this feeling of, will it still be there? Is there enough for everyone? Is there, and so many of those things, when we think about how they relate to the tactical numbers in our bank account versus the things we feel inside, right? Is there enough time for me to exercise and work? Is there enough time for me to be a mom and a business owner, right? All of those scarcity principles, they just feed on each other. Absolutely. And and they compound each other, right? And there are things that you're asked to do as a founder or business leader, or even as a development director, because it's tied fundamentally to bringing in the resourcing that pays everyone else's salaries that there is a level of responsibility you hold for everyone else's financial goals, personal situation, life standing. Like, And it's like when you hear from somebody, hey, my family's going through X, Y, and Z. I need to be able to support this family member. Of course, you want to say like, great, let's give you that raise. Let's enable that so we don't lose you. But because of the very nature of the structure of how nonprofits get funded, You don't get multi-year grants. You don't get enough unrestricted funding. You don't like, you don't have the power to show someone that they're valuable in that way. And that feels so absolutely inverse to what I've seen in the venture capital field where, you know, that's the only time where I've seen somebody come in and say, oh, I need a million dollars for this. And the investors go, no, actually you need 1.75 to be comfortable because I don't, I don't want you coming back and asking me for money in six months. Right. Or you need that because you're not going to get the best marketing director you can find at that salary. You need to be able to pay more. And if we approached philanthropy with that kind of mindset, that like it's not a, that efficiency actually is irresponsible. That if you want to achieve the impact, attracting the best talent, maintaining that talent, being able to commit to long term plans and programs and the relationships that are deeply entwined in those, like, And that at the end of the day, that will help the underlying mental health of the organization. Talking about paradigm shifts, I mean, that to me would be absolutely game-changing if we saw that kind of change. And that's not even accounting, especially like I think about stories I heard from folks over this last year of how emotionally impactful it was to have to lay people off, right? It's almost like it's one thing if you're firing somebody for poor performance because like you can make the argument that like this isn't a good fit, da-da-da-da-da. But when you're laying someone off just because you can't pay them, like that is gut-wrenching. And there is almost no support provided 
to the leaders or managers who are having to go through that to help with, you know, it's also obviously gut-wrenching to receive that news too. Like I'm not trying to minimize the impact for people who've lost their jobs, but there is also a psychological toll for the person who has to make that decision and then implement it. And I think that that's some of the places where there's a lack of empathy or a lack of understanding for all the things that business leaders have to hold that makes it different. And and when I am saying business, I am absolutely including nonprofit leaders. Your tax status is irrelevant. Like you are having to run a functional organization that can survive and thrive and grow. And so I think those are other elements that end up getting buried or covered up and can increase that sense of isolation we talked about earlier. Yeah. I mean, I could not agree with that, with all of that more. So I feel like there is growing bodies of research around this whole person, right? And, you know, we watch like Adam Grant talking about these types of things constantly, right? And yet still this massive disconnect between organizations, big and small, being able to implement sort of quote unquote best practices. Like if we know, you know, if studies are showing that innovation and creativity are being capped off when we treat people certain ways or create certain structures within organizations, what's the barrier? Like what is holding people back from being able to adopt some of these paradigm shifts? I think it depends on kind of where you are in your organization's development. Like there are very different challenges if you are starting a new organization with a new team than if you've got a legacy organization with 25 or 50 years of history, right? And then the in-between. I think there's also challenges depending on size and scale. But given those parameters, I think when you're looking at any kind of legacy organization, you're fundamentally running into a, a behavior change, culture change issue. And this is, you know, organizational development folks have been focused on this for decades that like getting people to change an entrenched culture is extremely difficult. And we rarely prioritize or allocate the time and the level of conversation necessary to like unmask some of the behaviors and incentives that are why people are doing things the way they're doing currently. We also very rarely, I think, have the courage to change management in those, what's the phrase? People don't quit a job, they quit a bad manager, right? Like oftentimes a lot of the cultural signaling comes from middle management or leadership about whether or not it's safe to disagree, whether or not it's safe to ask what you need flex time-wise, whether or not it's safe to take off work if you're genuinely sick. Can you take a sick day or can you take a mental health day or can you take a vacation day? Like that all gets very subtly coded in culture. And if there isn't a clear process and facilitated mechanism for talking about that and maybe even changing leadership or management if they're not aligning to the new culture, Things can change on paper without actually really changing the practices. And I think that's very different than when you're in a startup culture for either a new nonprofit or for-profit, where, yes, there's a lot of creativity and flexibility to kind of create, but there is similar pressure that it's seen as luxurious to make the time. And I, I that is an intentional language choice. I often say making the time versus taking the time, right? Because You need to choose to make the time to have those conversations about structure and process. And and I'm I'm a huge fan of Tuckman's small development theory of uh, that I learned in grad school when I was doing my MBA of of forming, storming, norming, performing. And that all teams go through this. And oftentimes storming can either break a team or it's it's that point that teaches them how to start creating norms and processes and clear expectations and containers for feedback and all the things that bring them into what high performance is. And I think a lot of startups kind of come in with the myth that you can just start high performing out of the gate. And and that <laughs> it's a myth. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> um, and storming doesn't have to be a break point depending on emotional intelligence, communication. And I always think back when I was starting conveners.org with Topher Wilkins, it was his baby, right? Like he started convening the conveners and then I kind of like was coming and being like, yo, I've got this network of accelerators. Can like, we do this together. And there was a point where I was going to do my first call with a community member where he wasn't present. And he was just being quiet and standoffish. And finally I was just like, it's over. Like what's going on? Like, are you, 
are you afraid of something like something happening and I'm not going to swear. <laughs> but like, he was just like, yeah, you're going to mess this up. <laughs> and I was like, okay, thank you for being honest about that. Well, what if we practice? What if like I pretend you're this person and I'm going to deliver the thing the way I would if you were them, how does that feel? And he's like, okay, let's try it. We did it. And then afterwards she was like, oh, you got this. Cool. I don't have to be afraid anymore. And like storming can be as small as that. Just naming a discomfort or a fear and like then saying, cool, well, now we can get creative about how we address that fear. Oh my gosh. I'm so obsessed with that story. And I just want to add in that I think this is such a critical part of fundraising fears because I talk a lot about this in terms of our ability that one of the most important things an executive director could do with their fundraising team is to talk about people's discomfort and fears of fundraising. Because as long as we perpetuate, and I believe this for so long, that because I was nervous, because I got that pit in my stomach, that I must be bad at it, right? That there was no way that the good fundraisers felt the way that I felt. I was sure it was just me. And so I'm constantly saying to EDs, the more that you can talk about this, being an incredibly natural part of the vulnerability of talking about money, right? Talking about like money moving in this way in particular, right? Which is in the opposite direction that we typically think about money moving, right? In terms of like buying a product or something like that. And yeah, I I just think it exactly what you said. When that can be talked about, the entire conversation, the creativity around fundraising campaigns and different conversations with donors, it just opens up so much more possibility, so much more opportunity than if we're dealing with that or we're in that fear-based state that no one can talk about. And there's just that tension in the room. And I also just want to call out for folks who are listening, the bravery that you had in saying, hey, I'm noticing this dynamic in our relationship right now. What's up, right? And for folks to really encourage them to, that we know how scary that is, but to find ways to say, I've said to bosses too, you know, I can tell that there's some nervousness around this. Could we talk about that? Or, you know, I would really love to invite you to share with me how you're feeling about this upcoming meeting. And I'm prepared to hear whatever it is that you're thinking, because I want to make sure we can go into it knowing where each other's at. And I think there's a piece of When you're starting an organization or you're leading an organization, it's quite probable that you're coming in because you have expertise or skill sets in that specific area. Maybe you know a lot about clean water and that's why you've kind of risen to the top of this organization or you've started this organization or I know a lot about education and so I've done that. It doesn't mean that you've actually gone through education or training about facilitation, about organizational development about critical thinking, about, right, like, those are pieces that I think it's sometimes assumed that leaders just have, but quite probably that's not something that they ever actually got access to in their education. And like, maybe they were lucky and maybe they had a mentor earlier in their career who taught them those things, but that's not their expertise. And so I think there's a double standard sometimes where we expect leaders to come in and know how to facilitate these kinds of conversations or know what kind of productivity containers to use. We've never really taught them how to do that. And so one of the tools that I've used in various contexts that I've I've found really helpful, there's a whole arsenal of them, but knowing and understanding when there is a deep power imbalance that is in place. And how do you use facilitation techniques to disrupt that power imbalance? Because truth is, that conversation with Topher could have gone a totally different way. I could have said, hey, I'm noticing this. And he could have just said, no, I'm fine. Right? Like that that was just as probable of an outcome of that statement, (laughs) right? And so tools like conversation mapping or anything that enables anonymous collection of what people are thinking or feeling about a topic. And then you share that and you talk about that as a group. That is a really powerful technique to free people from fear of repercussions for being honest about their experience. So that's one technique. It obviously works best with slightly larger groups so that you aren't 
kind of doing the the detective work to be like, oh, Amy said this, or it's <laughs> great. But that that is one technique for disrupting power dynamics. Another one was my friend Julie Mentor at when she was at New Media Ventures. She was the one who who told me about this concept called 10-10-10. And it was a feedback container that she was using with her teams where they had a recurring weekly 30-minute meeting. And the first 10 minutes were for the employee to just share anything that was up for them, ideally things that were not working. Then 10 minutes for the the manager to share what they were observing, with, not respond, but to just share their mm-hmm. things. And then 10 minutes to talk about what the resolution was. And there were a few pieces in that design that were really meaningful. One was the every week piece. Because even if you missed one week, it was happening frequently enough that nothing had a chance to fester. There wasn't a chance for somebody to start spinning out their own narrative and assumptions and things because it wasn't being addressed. Like you talked about it while it was still really fresh. The second was having it just blocked on the calendar because oftentimes I've heard leaders talk about, well, I have an open door policy. You can come at any time. And that's not acknowledging the power dynamic at play and that that puts a lot of burden on your team member to have to take that first step to get the meeting scheduled to talk about something that's fundamentally going to be uncomfortable. And so if that block of time is just always there, you've removed that that power dynamic. And then the third is how shockingly, a lot of times, folks just want to be heard. And that the resolution, it sometimes the resolution is you need to change a process or shift a way of working together. But a lot of times it's just, I just needed to know you heard me and that you knew that this was up, or I just needed an apology or something like that, that can be so quickly addressed. So that those are kind of two specific facilitation kind of containers or techniques. And another one that I always tell leaders is never underestimate the power of appreciation. It costs you nothing, nothing to pay attention and give specific, personalized kudos to people that you work with. And that will go so far in setting that psychological safety and in setting the filling people's cups, right? That like one of the things that we hope for is that people will assume best intent from others on the team. And a lot of time dysfunction and stuff spins out of the narrative you're telling yourself is that this person meant something bad versus it was a mistake or it was just miscommunication or something else. And if you want people to assume best intent, appreciation and visibility, not just top down, but across the team goes so far in just creating that buffer and that emotional kind of resilience for Mm -hmm. the team. Oh, I love that. All of those are great. And we'll make sure that there are links below this episode so folks can find resources and you and all of those different tools because they're phenomenal. First, T of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. I want to go back to something you said at the very beginning of this, where we were talking about the paradigms and then, you know, thinking about COVID-19 and this disruption to paradigms and potentially this opportunity to rethink some of the paradigms because we have been forced to do so. And so when you were talking about sort of all those ways in which paradigms are institutionalized via management or bureaucracy or funding streams or anything, but over the last you know year plus, we have been forced, all of us at every level, to do things differently. I mean, I can't think, as you were saying that, I was trying to think, is there anyone who didn't have to do something fundamentally different throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. And I'm sure there is, but I cannot think of it. But so what does that mean? Like, what are you thinking about are some of the primary paradigms that we now have the opportunity to discuss? Yeah, I would say that kind of three of the paradigms that come to mind, one is parenting, 
right? And the blending of that that balance. I think the second is actually about trust and autonomy and kind of embedded in that is this idea of flexible time. And I would say the third is about proximity. And so starting with parenting, I'm a parent, I have a almost four-year-old. I gave birth while actively running an organization, went through a super painful contraction right after giving birth where I had to lay off team members. Financially, it was very difficult. I had to build back up from there. And I've also had employees. I've had multiple employees who've given birth and how do you manage kind of maternity leave or, or parental leave as the case may be. And I actually been thinking of this NPR I was listening to two days ago where someone was talking about like, well, I've been picking my child up from school every day at three. I don't want to give that up. And if you make me go back into an office and work from five, like that might be a deal breaker to me. And I think as business leaders, recognizing is your need for control actually going to undermine your ability to keep the best talent? Because I think it will ultimately. And I think there is a conversation to have intentionally with your team about what has worked for them about virtual and what hasn't. And not just saying it's all or nothing. And what hybrid looks like for one company is going to be very different than what it looks like for another company. And so I don't think it is about best practice. I think it's about intentional conversation and asking the questions and not being afraid to like give space for folks to come up with creative solutions and and improv tools like yes and can be really helpful in that process. And I think also as parents, like this question of when and how do you make space to bring in your personal experiences into the workplace in a way that still feels professional, but also feels connective, right? I think a lot of folks have gotten used to like folks, kids jumping on video calls and like saying hi in a way that obviously would never happen in a meeting, but that that's not a bad thing, but that's not, that's not a, a downside for folks to actually feel connected to one another and to know and ask questions about someone's life, like that, that actually builds a lot of the, the camaraderie underpinning and, and that that's what leads into this trust question, right? A lot of old school managers, in my view, want nine to five because they want to keep an eye on you as if people aren't messing around on Facebook and doing other stuff on their laptops. Like just because their butt is in the seat doesn't mean they're being productive, doesn't mean that you are, you know, having that control. It's it's an illusion, right? And so I think if leaders can kind of confront that illusion part and step back from that a little bit, because a lot of organizations have found in their own internal studies that actually productivity has gone up with work from home, not down. That's not true for every industry or every field, but know what's appropriate to your industry, to your field, to your organization. And I think that trust piece ends up coming back to having that conversation. What is actually enhanced when we're together? Oh, social time is really valuable. There's a lot that comes out of that that you can't manufacture in a pre-scheduled Zoom call, right? Or brainstorming meetings or strategic planning meetings, or there's certain types of meetings where it is actually really helpful to be in a room together, to be playing with space and getting getting out of this tiny little box view that that does limit your thinking because it's small. Maybe we need the whole wall. Maybe we need to like walk around together. And so I think naming that and knowing when and how those need to be deployed can be really valuable. And, and then I think coming into the third is around looking at the paradigm of almost like of how we make decisions, right? Is it top down, which feeds back to the trust? Is it, is it you telling everyone what's best? Or is it creating those containers and those spaces for everyone to contribute their, their ideas and to do that yes anding and to, to build off of one another? Because that ends up being a lot of that root of innovation. And the Human Relations Association, one of the studies that they came out with was speaking to how many people are planning to leave their jobs. A lot of folks hunkered down in stuff that they didn't love because they had to. And as the economy starts to come back and things start to improve, you know, it comes back to what I said before, like people leave bad managers, they don't leave bad jobs. And so that ownership as a leader of your own well-being and of creating space for your team to have that well-being also has just a valuable business case to it. Turnover is expensive. 
hiring new people is expensive. And if you're talking about development, where relationships are the heart and soul of it, it is expensive. And so even if you're not bought into like the hippie woo-ness of like, well-being and self-love and all that stuff, for just the pure financial security of your organization, (laughs) unleashing productivity or not incurring these heavy costs that can come down because your culture isn't supporting your team, that just makes business sense, regardless of your tax status. (laughs) Totally. Well, and something I love, and I feel like you really model this type of thinking in a lot of what you do, is that you're always asking curious questions from a what's working perspective too. Like I think one of the things that's happening, even with the research about productivity over the last year is a lot of people are falling back into, well, this has always been the way it's done, right? Or this has, we've existed for this long. Business history. It's a thing. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, but you're bringing up so many important points. Like even when you were talking about kids coming in on calls, right? I think before the pandemic, many of us would have said it's unprofessional to have a child interrupt a phone call with a donor, right? We would have just thought that. Think about the viral video from a few years back on BBC and the kids coming in and we thought that was just outrageous, right? We were like, how embarrassing. Exactly. I was thinking about that when you were telling the story, right? We were like, this outrageous moment was a kid breaking through the door while he's delivering the weather, right? But it's so interesting because part of that, I think I'm just actually processing this right now is because we have, and this goes into everything that you're talking about and everything that you're working on, we have dehumanized professional roles to need to sit in a box where they aren't connected to these other components of our lives. And that's often what makes us feel isolated and alone and afraid and all of these different things. And yes, there were tremendous challenges over the last year plus from a parenting perspective and childcare perspective. I have a two-year-old and we didn't have childcare for five months when she decided to start walking. And, you know, we were running around the house. Death watch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the like switch, you know, 1130, my husband would work for half the day undisturbed and then we'd switch the baby half the day through. And there was still crying and screaming and banging in the background and feeling like we weren't good at either thing, right. That I wasn't giving my daughter the attention when I was with her and working till 11 PM with frozen peas stuck to my feet some days, but you know, like, yes, those things were really hard. And there are many things that I found about myself as a working mom that I love, that I don't want to give away, right? This maybe belief system shifting for me around compartmentalization that I somehow believed that to be better, where like my daughter did sit on my lap in donor meetings or client meetings, and it was so beautiful. And me and the donor got to talk about motherhood, all these things. And so I think what you're asking us all to do that I'm just doing right now on this call is to say, what are the beliefs that we've been holding to be true about work culture, about ourselves as leaders? Where did they come from? And maybe we don't even need to know that, but maybe we do in some situations, but let's challenge whether or not they're true with really open minds and asking what else have we seen? What else works? What else might be possible? And are they still serving you? Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of times we develop these ideas and beliefs. I mean, I I was actually talking to a fellow board member today about childhood trauma. <laughs> it's like, guess what? Our childhood trauma influences how we show up with employees, how we show up with board members, how we show up, right? Like, and being able to feel safe enough to name some of that and be like, yeah, and I developed those coping mechanisms because they served me then but do they still serve me now? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But that also helps when you understand where or why someone reacts or responds the way they do, especially in a distributed team. And I, and I feel like in some ways boards kind of have been doing this a lot longer because very often boards are distributed, even if a team is, is centralized in location. And there are those real questions of like, do we assume positive intent? 
from our other board members? Do we assume competence? How do we receive respect? How do we perceive respect? What does trust mean, right? And so the, those are a lot of things that we're working through as a board right now and, and taking through. And, and so another tool that I will shamelessly plug is the Thomas Kilman Conflict Mode Assessment. It's a tool that I, I experienced for the first time in grad school. And I have used it in almost every single organization I've been a part of because it gives you a model for understanding conflict. Not like I think culturally we innately have a connotation that conflict is bad. It means you're fighting. And the reality is there's this thing called productive conflict. And that if you want innovation, if you want disruption, you have to be able to disagree and not have that result in personal harm, but actually result in a better idea. And so they, they map it along kind of degrees of assertiveness and degrees of cooperativeness. And part of what I love about this model is that it never demonizes any of the modes. It really names there is a time and a place where avoidance is actually the right strategy versus collaborating, versus cooperating with each other, versus competing, versus accommodating. That there's a time and a place where each of these is actually the right response. And if we only put one up on a pedestal that collaborating is the be-all, end-all of, of servant leadership and all this stuff, it removes your ability to name, actually, collaboration takes a huge amount of time, huge amount of resources. To do it well, like, requires a significant skill set around facilitation. And it means your organization can't move quickly. If that's how every decision is going to be made, and there's a time and a place where hierarchy and authoritarian, like not authoritarianism, but like a clear line of authority is actually what's needed. And I think sometimes in the nonprofit space, I see such an allergic reaction to like hierarchical for-profit business structures. That's like, no, everything needs to be collaboration or compromise, right? And no, actually, sometimes you need to just know how and when to make a decision quickly and to move forward. And folks just need to be clear on that process so that they can expect it. And so that, that's another tool. And, and this idea, if you move to productive conflict, then you really start to unleash high performance. And I think that's true at board levels. I think that's true between leadership and boards. I think that's true between leadership and employees and between employees, like kind of each level needs to understand when and how they can engage in conflict in a way that's going to be additive and supportive and not destructive. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. This has been amazing. I mean, I feel like we all just got a 101 in thriving cultures in our organizations and our businesses. I mean, I wish I could have listened to this before I was an ED, you know, or before I was a managing director. So I'm so grateful for you sharing this amount of wisdom. And we will definitely link to a number of resources below as well. But also I want to make sure that folks can find you. So where can they find you? Definitely LinkedIn is the best. I'm very blessed that actually I'm the only Avery Kent on the planet. So my SEO is just naturally awesome. I love that. <laughs> but yeah, I, you know, LinkedIn, I, I always appreciate folks reaching out and little LinkedIn tip. Don't just click connect, leave a note, say why you want to connect with somebody and you're more likely to get a response. Um, <laughs> you were going to get that tip here too. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but yeah, so, so LinkedIn is definitely the, the best for me. And this is definitely my passion is how to, how to support us as a community as we're moving through this transition and how do we make sure we are building intentionally the culture and the organizations that we want to succeed and to create impact in and not just kind of defaulting to what was because we know that, right? How do we do this in a way that can unleash, hopefully, the new normal or, or the next thing, the next paradigm for business? Wow. Yes. Okay. People, find Avery. <laughs> 
bring her into your organizations. I feel like I hope folks use this conversation as a conversation starter with their boards of directors and with their staff that they use this as a catalyst to have some of these harder, bigger conversations and utilize the tools they need in order to create that psychological safety for self and then their teams. And I'm always just so grateful for you. So thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Wow. Did this hour fly by or what? I was so immersed in this conversation that I forgot to ask Avery to shout out a nonprofit. But not to worry, she followed up with me over email. So let me start by highlighting her nonprofit of choice, conveners.org. As we all know, building a strong ecosystem of support is often undervalued and underappreciated. Avery loves conveners.org because they are building communities of trust and support for both conveners and accelerators. Their members are supporting thousands of changemakers working to build a thriving world. When she supports conveners.org, she knows she's making a difference globally and across every issue area, from eliminating poverty and hunger to improving education and combating climate change. So definitely go and check out conveners.org. And we'll have more information about them and Avery on malloryerickson.com backslash podcast. You'll find all the detailed show notes there. And I would really suggest heading over there for this episode in particular, because Avery shared so many incredible individual and team frameworks that you don't want to miss. And I'm sure you want to apply to your organization. That's malloryerickson.com backslash podcast. Most importantly, thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I'm so grateful for all of my listeners, especially you, and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day, and I'll see you next week. you. I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to malloryerickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.